Thank you very much for coming back for another edition of this podcast. As you know by now, I'm sure, this is the podcast that lives at the very intersection of technology and art and creativity. And every week, we speak to somebody from youth culture or youth marketing. This week, we've done something a little bit different. We've come to have a chat with the freelance journalist James O'Malley. He has written pieces for Wired, The Spectator, The New Statesman, Politics.co.uk. He was the editor of Gizmodo for a long time here in the UK. And he also has his own podcast called The Pod Delusion. And I wanted James on for three reasons. One, he's incredible company. He speaks at 100 miles per hour. His passion points are tech, politics and how they affect wider society. Two... He's got really strong views on the importance of data and the importance of how that could affect young audiences. And three, he really, really loves a rant about TikTok. So we sat down with James O'Malley and we found out a little bit about him, a little bit about the work he does. And then we asked him for his rocket fuel. So, James O'Malley, welcome to Rocket Fuel, and thank you so much for doing this. It's good to be here. Um, James, the first section of this podcast is, it's around getting to know the person involved and, mm. and getting to know you a bit better. Tell us a bit about your journey. Tell us about some of the things that you've done up until now. Oh, where to start? So... Uh, my name is James O'Malley. I'm a freelance uh, technology and politics writer. Um, I've been a journalist since around sort of 2013. Uh, so I, I left. I studied international relations at university, got my master's degree, uh, worked at a couple of tech startups, and then made the switch to journalism. That was all thanks to uh, doing a podcast called The Pod Delusion. Now I started this podcast back in 2009, back before normal people didn't know what, back before normal people knew what a podcast was. Um, and it was a weekly show, it was a news magazine show, and the sort of shtick was it was an it was from an ideological point of view. It wasn't the BBC. It wasn't down the middle. Of, it down the middle. It was all from a sort of rationalist point of view, which is a very sort of poncy way of saying, uh, you know, we we like to ask for the evidence about things, and we we, we took a point of view on things. We built up a small audience. Uh, we did it every week. We got some really big names on the show: David Attenborough, Mando Nucci. Uh, we even had Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, which was a very surreal interview, <laughs> and it was really enormous fun. But it was basically a full-time hobby. It was all-consuming, both for me um, and my partner, who I made the show with, and um, a whole group of contributors we put the show together with. Uh, so I did that for five years, and then we stopped around April four, uh, April 2014, just because uh, we, we both got a little bit burnt out. We both got proper jobs by that point, so we couldn't just make this podcast and skive off of doing actual work all week to make this thing. And then a few months after we stopped doing the podcast, Serial launched and made podcasting a really big, <laughs> big thing that everyone understood than you. Uh, so that was very frustrating. Uh, so since then, um, I've been a, a freelance uh, writer and journalist. I've written stuff for um, a whole load of different outlets. Um, I wrote a cover story for The Spectator about China's social credit system. Um, I've written for Wired. I've written for The New Statesman. I've written for Tech Radar. Um, for two years, I was the um, editor of Gizmodo UK, which is the UK edition of the big American tech blog Gizmodo. This is this much smaller <laughs> UK offshoot, uh, but I, I was in charge of that. So I've, I've done all of that. I've done some other uh, fun stuff you might want to touch upon. I built a bot that winds up Donald Trump and his family. Um, I went. I was famous for a week in Canada. That's my other sort of viral success. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I've I've done all sorts of weird little things over the years. And for the benefit of the listener, it's quite funny, isn't it? Because you were creating a podcast when I, as an entrepreneur, was creating a podcast network. Mm. And both your podcast and my podcast network came about two years before there was actually any money in podcasting. So either we're very, very good or not very good at all <laughs> between the pair of us. But that's how James and I have known each other in a former life. Mm. James, getting under under the bonnet a bit... Are you any good at ever switching off? How do you relax? <laughs> um, I, I, I wonder if I'm any good at switching on. But the problem is with being uh, a sort of freelancer, as I do, and a journalist and somebody who wastes far, far too much of their life on Twitter, it's there's there's no sort of five o'clock tools down, heading home, switching off for the evening. I'm always slightly alert. If um, I see something interesting, I will make a note of it to to try and turn it into some content or or some or something that I do. Uh, there's there's I, I, I've said to my partner, and I I think she thought I was joking, and I'm not entirely sure if I was. But I, I once said to her on holiday, "What is a holiday if not content that's just waiting to be created, <laughs> or, or something like that?" Um, because it's just I, I don't know. That's just just how I think. I like I like I like making things and and doing things. I like creating podcasts. I like writing things. And yeah, the trouble with being uh, a sort of journalist and writer is. You can't just switch off. It's not like you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm making spreadsheets and then have to go home. It's I need ideas, so I need to consume a wide range of different things to get ideas of things to write about and, and produce on, and so on. And is there a when you're looking to collaborate with people, or when you're looking at even people that you you want to work with, is mm. there a commonality? Is there a behavioural trait that you look for most in the type of people that you <laughs> want to work with? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I, th- I think the um, the sort of underlying thing and the thing I think goes through quite a lot of my work, or at least this is how I pretentiously think about it, is the sort of uh, the values which under, under, undergirds it. The Pod Delusion podcast, my podcast years ago when I first started it, is that I like uh, asking questions about things. I like you know, finding the truth about things and <laughs> examining things from a sort of a sceptical point of view um, rather than... And so any, anyone who can do that or who can break down something uh, complex into uh, something simpler or something or, or, t- or tell me the story, what's going on behind something, I find really interesting. So for exa- just to give you a, a completely random example, um, on the pod delusion um, a few weeks ago, uh, we're, we're recording this shortly after the whole Prince Andrew Pizza Express <laughs> scandal. Yeah. Uh, and so I thought, well, with our show, we like to sort of take an adjacent approach to the news agenda. We don't want to just talk about the news because loads of people are doing that. So we'll ask, well, how would we actually get rid of the monarchy? Let's imagine it's 2022. We've had the the uh, the, the monarchy referendum over King Charles and um, Britain votes to get rid of the monarchy. Is it going to be as messy and as horrible to do as Brexit? And then I, so I talked to a constitutional expert, someone who's written about this extensively, and he was able to break it down into the, the sort of <laughs> endless complexities uh, that such a thing would involve. Uh, so I, any any sort of topic or any any person who can do that, for, um, I really like. Um, and again, it's just I always think there's there's loads of interesting stuff. You, you can talk to basically anyone who's an expert. I'm, the whole sort of premise of the pod delusion, and I think to a lesser extent, um, or, or to the same extent everything else I do, is uh, unlike Michael Gove, I do think we haven't had enough of experts. So if I can find an expert on something who can talk, to, who I can get to talk to me, that's brilliant. Okay. Um, big question now. Have you hmm. ever had a mentor who inspires you? Oh, okay. So I don't think I don't think I've ever had a mentor, but there is there is loads of people who I I look to and think, oh, I wish I could do something as well as they do. 
the one that leaps to mind is uh, the right is the writer Michael Lewis, who wrote uh, The Big Short and Moneyball and all that sort of thing. You just read his writing, and he's just got such an incredible way of telling a story, taking complex ideas, messy ideas, and then boiling them down into something that normal people can understand. I just think it's incredible, and I will, I will, if he releases. Uh, a new article which is invariably you know 5,000 words long I will drop everything to go and consume it because he's brilliant so he's like my he's like a hero I would aspire to be I guess I think that's probably the closest I can get and James I know you're you're a freelance journalist with the with the pod delusion you you, you found a loyal fan base mm. do you do you is there a sense of a, a a big fan base, a loyal fan base across social media. Do people actively seek out the work that you do, no matter what title it crops up in? Uh, so I th- certainly think uh, people will follow my work in that way. With the pod solution, what we found was, I need to separate this out because basically the pod solution originally ran from 2009 to 2014, like I said. Uh, I relaunched the show <laughs> earlier this year as a sort of a bit of a response to the current climate, you know, Trump and Brexit and all of that sort of thing, and needing needing somewhere to sort of, again, a place for people who like experts to, to, to go and be. With the original pod delusion, what we found was we became very embedded within what was called then the sceptics community. This was, again, people who... Uh, it was Back in around 2011, the biggest problem in the world wasn't Brexit or Trump. It was... Um, it was people who believed in uh, star signs and um, homeopathy and that sort of thing and sort of crazy religious fundamentalists. And there's a whole community of people who got together broadly under this this banner of being a sceptic and they held conferences and there was an event called Skeptics in the Pub that was very popular all over the country. People would go to these things. And we became the sort of podcast for that movement. I don't want to self-aggrandise. We obviously weren't enormous. Um, But again, for people in that demographic, people who, you know, identified with these values, we were there every week providing the soundtrack to it. And I always liken this to Britpop in the same way that in 1996, the the Britpop moment was very much Blur and Oasis. But then you had, you know, Chris Evans on the radio and you had a young Tony Blair pre War mm. Tony Blair, you know, making us optimistic and all this sort of thing. Um, and that was like a cultural moment where all these things came together. The sceptic scene in 2011 was back then. So back then we had this sort of community who, again, would <laughs> really like our show. Um, we won an award in the sceptic community. It must have been around 2011, 2012. And I just remember um, going up on stage. And this was at a sceptics conference. And like, you know, it was sort of like being a micro celebrity at, <laughs> at this mm. event because lots of people knew who I was. I had a woman come up to me and was like, "Oh, how's your, how's your kidney stones?" And I was like, "How the hell do you know that?" Oh, I mentioned that on the podcast, uh, so <laughs> it was it was all very strange. Uh, since um, since I've, re- I've relaunched the Pod Delusion, it's really interesting because I, I stopped doing the show because, like I say, we got a bit burnt out. We got busy with with real life. But then, since it came back, a lot of these same people have immediately signed up to the um, signed up to subscribe to the show and signed up to the Patreon, which has been really nice because it shows people out there. You know, they did care because it was a bit. So, you know, sometimes the feedback would. Um, sometimes you get a lot of feedback on something. Sometimes it wouldn't always be there, and it'd be disheartening or whatever. But you realise only oh, people did listen and people did care to this thing that we were doing every week, and it, that was really gratifying. So, I think there are people out there. And I just want to ask just getting to understand the entrepreneurial spirit of you because (laughs) as a freelance journalist you have to be looking for work Mm. and I just wanted to kind of get under the skin of how are you constantly pitching ideas do you come up with one theme and then and then go to a number of friendly titles (laughs) do you do you come how how does that process work 
Oh, you sound like my inner monologue. Um, so uh, I, I have, um, I, I wish I had sort of a more of a process. One thing I think I, is I, I'm relatively disorganised in how I do things. If I, I can get slightly obsessed with uh, digging into something, because I've got a number of sort of disparate skills, I'm sort of, I can, I, for example, I'm a coder. So I, well, I'm not a coder at all, sorry. I, I'm not a coder, but I, I know a little bit of, uh, how to code so I, I can take a data set and I can manipulate it and and dig into it and scrape data and do do sorts of sort of things I can nod my way through a conversation with a real programmer who would sort of scream with horror if they actually saw any of the actual code I wrote but because I can do this I can sort of find myself going down this rabbit hole looking into this data trying to find a story and then I'll try and you know pitch that elsewhere and, and then be distracted and I'll, I'll be three days have gone by when I could have been working on other stuff uh, but it, is, it tends to be yeah once I once I've latched on to um, a story or something I'm interested in, I will try and go to different outlets and you know ad- adapt an idea around because there's editors who I've built relationships with who I know broadly what they're looking for uh, sometimes I'll try and pitch stuff cold with mixed results mm-hmm. um, but yeah I, I, I really wish there was some method to, to the madness it's basically uh, a lot of time faffing about and then occasionally striking gold I think and what do you think you are known for Oh, okay. So the three the three things I would say um, this sorry there's three things I think I'm probably uh, best known for, uh, which is th- these are the sort of three things I've had sort of minor <laughs> viral hits with. So um, in 2014, um, my holiday video I made went viral. Um, I went to Canada for the first time. My partner's Canadian. We went to like nor- uh, you know, eight hours north of Toronto, where the snow was four feet high because it's February. And I just did a video where I tried to do as many Canadian things as possible or point at many Canadian things. And, um, yeah, it just, for whatever reason, it got 600,000 views. I ended up on the Canadian equivalent of, of uh, GMTV, um, interviewed by a satellite with, uh, with, by a Canadian man who I think was just very impressed. I was very interested in Canada. So that, that, was, um, <laughs> that was a fun thing. Um, a couple of years later, and this is probably my favourite uh, thing that I've done, um, I built a bot on Twitter which monitors uh, the Trump family. So it's called Trump's Alert. That's Trump plural. And the idea was that basically, so back in the Cold War, if we wanted to know what was going on in the Soviet Union, they would they weren't telling us. They didn't have press officers and they didn't have um, a free press. So what Western observers would do is they would look at photos and other information and try and deduce what was going on in the leadership. So you'd look and see who was standing next to the leader on the balcony waving. And you go and you try and work out who was in and who was out. And it's called Kremlinology, this sort of way of deducing it. And I was thinking, well, the Trump family is sort of similar. They don't do press briefings. It's all it's basically a royal court of a sort of administration. It's all ordered around the king. It's not to do with uh, meritocracy or whatever else. Um, so I thought, can we get any more insight into this? Obviously, Donald Trump's there spewing his opinions out as it is. But can we try and get any other what other signals can we use to try and understand what was going on so I built mm. this Twitter bot which basically monitors uh, the likes and follows and unfollows on Twitter and any changes in the, the little Twitter bio from Donald Trump himself Donald Trump Jr his son Eric Trump Ivanka um, and Melania and Kellyanne Conway, one of his advisors. And basically, if it spots anything, like they've followed or unfollowed someone, <laughs> it, it tweets it out. So I built this bot. It just sat there, not doing really anything uh, for a few months. Um, but then eventually, Donald Trump Jr., he unfollowed a comedian after the comedian tweeted something critical of Donald Trump. And the comedian saw this because the, the bot tweets, Donald Trump Jr. has just unfollowed at whoever it is. And within that, then, then within a weekend, the bot just caught fire and now has about 75, 80,000 followers or something like that. Loads of like American journalists follow it. It's, it's quite weird to think how like 
a good percentage of like the Washington Press Corps all follow this bot and occasionally use it for updates. My my dream is that one day it will be used in the impeachment inquiry where they'll be like, aha, but didn't you not like this tweet at this certain time? And my bot will have been the, the thing that broke that story. Uh, the best thing it's done, I think, was it predicted that uh, so the, <laughs> Trump replaced his economic advisor with a guy called Larry Kudlow. Uh, Ivanka followed him the day before the announcement was made, which was so that was like, you know, the tea leaves of it. And my bot broke that story uh, in a slightly more puerile sense. Don Jr. He I can't remember if, if he followed or unfollowed a porn account at one point. Uh, so that that was fun. <laughs> the, the, the weird thing about that was it happened about 11 o'clock at night UK time. And Don Jr. then quote tweeted my bot. And it freaked me out because it was 11, 11 p.m. at night. And I thought, are the CIA going to break through my door now and murder me? <laughs> you know, um, so that, that was that was unusual. But yeah, that was fun. And uh, the other thing I've done, uh, which is vaguely interesting, um, is I when I went to I went on holiday to China um, around this time last year. And um, I wasn't going to do any journalism there. I was there purely on holiday. I literally signed a form in the Chinese embassy saying uh, I promise not to do any journalism because I wasn't. I was going on holiday. I wanted mm. to see China and understand China and do the Great Wall and all this sort of thing. But then as we were going back on the train from Beijing to Shanghai, um, I filmed a little video of one of the announcements on the train because I thought that sounds unusual. And it was the announcement was saying something like uh, behave on the train, otherwise it could hurt your social credit score. And the social credit system is this system in China where you um, basically have a score assigned to you, a bit like a credit score, which can go up or down depending on your behavior. So the idea is it's hugely complicated. I could go into it in immensely boring detail, but the, the, the general sort of popularly perceived idea is uh, people's scores will be, you know, they'll go down if they jaywalk across the road. It can go up if you do something that the party like and so on. And I just filmed this, this announcement in English, posted it on Twitter when I got back and it went sort of mega viral. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I got to work no. on the back of it. But that, that was a that was a sort of fun viral video I made as well. So section two of the podcast, and I'm still here with James O'Malley, freelance journalist. Uh, I described him as a troublemaker at the start, <laughs> I think. Um I, I want to focus and really drill down on some of the work you've done and some of the things you've done. Mm. Let's start with your two passions of journalism, if you like, technology and politics, mm. and occasionally when the two cross over. So you've you've written for Gizmodo, you've written for The Spectator. Have, have you a favourite? Can you see parallels when writing about the two different bits? Talk to us about that. I think it's very difficult to separate the two. But the problem, I, 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 this isn't an original thought. I think uh, Dave Lee, the BBC technology journalist, uh, wrote a Medium post pointing this out a few years ago. But basically, the problem with being a technology journalist is these days you're basically an everything journalist because it's a you know a Facebook story it could be a business story, it could be a social media viral story, it could be a, you know a politics story, it could be an economic story, it could be basically anything. Um, so it's sort of a very broad brush. Yeah, so I, th- I think it's very hard to to separate the two. One thing um, you know, I do, I've, I've done a lot of in the past is a sort of what you probably think of when you think of technology journalism. So you're writing about new phones and new features and all the sort of the standard uh, stuff like that. Uh, but I'm in- increasingly interested in the sort of the broader stories about how technology platforms are impacting our, our lives and stuff. Uh, so again, they sort of go together and I think a lot of my work comes off the back of because I've got a foot in both camps because I'm a complete politics nerd I, I you know I stay up and watch elections I obsess over politics probably I dare say I'm more interested in politics than I am in technology um, but because I understand that and also I know about technology as well I can sort of when when the two collide 
I'm probably quite a good person to talk to, maybe. And okay, just staying with technology for a second, because obviously the the point of this podcast is to look at young people and look at young youth culture, youth mm. marketing. How do you see the advance in technology and the effect that it's having on young people? So I think certainly from a marketing perspective, is the, the thing we have to remember about young people is their lives are so completely different to even anything I can possibly conceive of. I think I'm certainly probably of the I'm so I'm 32. I'm probably of the last generation of people who grew up watching the BBC, for instance. Uh, whereas there was a recent Ofcom report that suggests that young people they mostly you know watch Netflix and consume YouTube and I, I presume TikTok and stuff like that. And so to sort of get our heads around that, it means we have to communicate with them in a completely different way because the whole the sort of axioms which with we. we through which, sorry, the, the sort of lens through which we consume content and understand the world is going to be so completely different. I think it's going to be a generational marker how you hold your phone. People, I'm going to be, again, the last generation, of, I'm going to be the last generation of people who hold the phone horizontally. All the young people, it's going to be, it drives me insane to see people filming vertical video, but part of me knows that's the future. <laughs> and um, and so, yeah, we, we, I don't know if there's, I don't think there's any sort of old, I, I'm not a marketing expert, but mm. I don't think there's any rules of the old, or any of the old rules necessarily apply anymore. And also as a tech journalist, is there mm. tech that you've seen in other territories, in other mm. places, whether it's not become popular, that's made you go, wow, I can either never see that catching on or or what don't we see that what technological advances don't we see? What hasn't become a roaring success? Oh, OK. Uh, so I think uh, I think China's a really good example of this because they've got almost a completely different technological ecosystem to what we do, because. Facebook doesn't exist in China. Google doesn't exist in China. Um, all of the other companies um, are vastly different. So they've got their own social networks and everything else, which is configured in a very different way. So uh, something like WeChat uh, is basically an operating system in its own right. It's a messaging app. But also on top of that, there's all sorts of uh, different layers and apps that can uh, be built into that. Live streaming like Twitch and stuff, I think, is a more mainstream thing for mainstream users, uh, certainly amongst young people. Um in, in, in China and even like sort of payment infrastructure, the thing you notice when you go to China is there are QR codes everywhere because people don't use Apple Pay or they don't use Samsung Pay or whatever. They literally just scan things with their phones and pay for them that way. And then that creates a whole broader ecosystem of just transferring money. And in terms of, like I mentioned with social credit, in terms of sort of building trust in society, the whole reason the social credit system exists was because people in China don't have bank accounts. So um, basically the idea is you use social cues such as who people are friends with and what they've been uh, buying and other stuff to sort of build this de facto score and this there's so there's that sort of technology we haven't got anywhere near that yet the thing even in china like i was as i said as i say i was in china um a year ago you walk around uh, just an antiques market people again don't take cash they just have qr codes uh, which people scan such such ubiquitous is the technology uh, in terms of things that haven't sort of uh, caught on yet i think it's important to sort of consider uh, the sort of business model and the rush rationale um, as to why things are going to take off. One thing as a technology analyst, which always amuses me, is uh, when you get people who are instinctively, whenever Apple announces a new product or um, an upgrade to the iPhone or whatever, they always just dismiss it as, well, Samsung did this two years ago, because whatever the sort of latest thing is, has already been 
existing in a mm. Samsung device. What that sort of fails to take into account is the sort of uh, the business model and the sort of design aspects and the user experience aspects of all these new technologies. And I think Apple are a really good company at taking something. They always take a slightly longer to build it into their devices, but when they do, they've thought through the whole experience. So again, Apple Pay is a good example of that. And the Apple credit card, which I don't think is launched here yet, but it's going to be coming soon. Um, they've thought about how that's going to work for the whole interface rather than just let's plug it plug it into a phone and, and sort of see how it works with no idea about how we're actually going to grow the market and make it a thing. Okay. Sorry, that wasn't I, a very good answer. No, <laughs> that was a good answer. Um, just on the on the kind of vastness of your work, mm. actually, let's go back to the bot that you built just for mm. a second. When you built that, what was your thinking behind it? Were you trying to make a point? Was it? Did it start off being purely for, out of interest? When you're looking to create these things, this mm. is why I, and I know other people haven't referred to you as a professional troublemaker. This is, <laughs> this is why you, to me, you kind of have that moniker, James, because mm. you you spoke you spoke a, a, about kind of a cynical disposition. Mm. What what's the point behind experimenting in that way? So with the bot, it was simply a case of I realised this information was out there. Like you can manually go onto Twitter and click onto Donald Trump's likes and see what he's been liking. But there's no way to sort of alert yourself to this. You can't can't make Twitter just pop up when, when he likes something sort of built into the product. So I thought I could build a bot that does this because I've done lots of stuff messing around with the Twitter API before, the sort of way developers can get into the Twitter back end and look at the data and that sort of thing. And then, so I built the bot and it did this. And I thought, and I originally went in thinking, well, this can be my own little story engine because I can keep watch on this. And then when they follow or unfollow someone, I can then break the story and be like the hero hero journalist. And then I realized, I mean, I like American politics and I follow it far too closely for someone in Britain and everything else. But I don't know who all these people are. I don't have the sort of insight. So I thought, well, I'll just sort of, you know, open source the outputs. So the actual bot isn't open source because, again, it's valuable, it's valuable intellectual property now. I've spent time coding it. But um, the actual outputs what the, um, and so on, I thought, I'll just put them out there onto Twitter and, so, and, see, and see what happens. So that was the sort of uh, motivation behind that. And does any of the work that you do have a, have a higher purpose? Is it coming from a... Have you got a theory mm. on on what politicians should be doing? Have you got a theory on what technology should be doing? Uh, yeah, I think I think a lot of what I do, and I mean, so, so if we look at the pod solution, it's very odd to think about all of my work drawn together in this way. But it is also, it is ultimately about, I think, aspiring towards uh, some sort of truthful approximation of, of what's going on in the world. And one thing I'm particularly conscious of is calling out my own side's nonsense and sort of pointing that out. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll find me very, very annoying because I'm a hardcore Remainer. I literally, I'm the guy who started the London Independence Petition, uh, the London Independence Petition uh, just after the Brexit referendum. I uh, got 180,000 signatures and I had a very weird weekend of international TV crews queuing up outside my house. Um, so that's my Remain credentials. But at the same time, I will see Remainers sharing all sorts of nonsense and it drives me insane. Because ultimately, the big problem in the current era is the definition is, is truth is the the concept of truth has been undermined. The concept of experts have been undermined, and I just think that that's terrible for society. So, funny enough, you've automatically jumped onto the next yeah. question because I'm wanting to talk about fake news. So, mm. so you've said truth. It's tough. You're 
essentially, is there anybody better place to solve a fake news problem than the man that works in tech, works in politics <laughs> and works in journalism? First question, and mm. it's a silly one. Do you think you've ever been a victim of fake news? Have you ever believed something? Oh, undoubtedly, because, you know, like everyone, we're sat there looking at Twitter. Certainly, I'm looking at Twitter 23 out of 24 hours of the day, twitching at my fingers, ready to retweet the latest thing. And, you know, there's been there must have been scores of times I've accidentally, uh, you know, retweeted something. But the, what, I, what I've had to train myself to do and what I think everyone should train themselves to do is if you see something that seems too good to be true, if you see something that looks too good or looks almost too convenient for your site, that's when you should be at your most sceptical. That's when you should think, hang on, is this really the case? How does it all, um, you know, does something like that really happen? A a really clear example that comes to me is, um, again, at the time of recording, uh, a few weeks ago, um, there was um, a a whole thing about, they did the rounds about question time. Uh, Mm. All the all the uh, prime, minister, prime ministerial candidates went on to question time, answered questions. Then there was the BBC are doing this editing, which is, you know, biased towards Boris Johnson because they edited out the laughing because you compare the two clips and everything else. And then <laughs> and, and this 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 meme got taken up by all sorts of people who frankly should know better other sort of. Uh, credible uh, journalists or the prominent Remainers were all sort of retweeting this nonsense. Whereas my view was, no, 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 let's think about this. So we're saying the conspiracy here is the BBC are deliberately throwing away all of their their, their values and incentives to um, you know, edit edit this clip to to bias it. Or what, what what are we trying to say here? And it's just the the, pack, the fact that people didn't unpack it and try and think about it in a more rational way. That annoys the hell out of me. Sorry, I can't remember what the original question was. But so sorry. Was, have you a been a victim yeah, yeah. of fake news? And so, how would you solve a problem like fake news? And I think where you were going was actually to solve a problem like fake news, mm. it's about the education of the individual. It's a societal problem where everybody has to be trained. When, mm. when I was a victim of fake news, it was around that quote that was not correctly attributed to now President Trump, Mm. where he said, if I was going to be leader of any American party, I'd choose the Republicans because they're not as clever as the Democrats. Mm. And and again, it was a completely made up quote, but it was only I actually fell for it. But that's simply because it was attributed to a Boston newspaper that doesn't exist. Mm. So if I'd have done my due diligence, I could have found out. But then I suppose, again, we've ended up on you have to empower the individual to solve that problem. Yeah, that's a really great example um, because, again, it's, it's too good to be true. You think, brilliant, I've got him. This is it. This is going to be the quote that you know undermines Trump or whatever. And so you, you're, just, you, you're dying to share it. But the problem is there is no – I don't think there is a technological tool which can solve the fake news problem. I mean, there are lots of people trying to build bots and do all sorts of uh, you know clever machine learning things. But ultimately – when it comes to something as as uh, human as di- divining the truth from a complex set of things, that's why you know traditionally we had journalists, and that's why traditionally you had uh, gatekeepers, um, which you could use a, as a heuristic. So uh, before the internet, if something was published in a newspaper, you could broadly assume it was true, or at least um, <laughs> you know a- aiming towards the truth. Because if you want, if someone has a newspaper, it implies. Um, you know, they've, they've, it, it takes quite a lot of work to, to write a story, publish it, print it out, send it to different shops and have a whole distribution mechanism. And for whatever reason, uh, there was a culture of shame where if a newspaper got it wrong, people would feel bad. These, this day and age, 
publishing information is essentially frictionless. Anyone can publish uh, anything which can go viral at the moment's notice. And the sort of context for it has collapsed because on Facebook, a fake post looks exactly the same as a completely correct and true post because you don't have the sort of different context of looking at a different document or, or, or anything else like that. So it's really easy to see how it catches on. So ultimately, we need to um, solve the problem through uh, education and culture. Um, people with denigrated media studies. So this, actually, this hasn't happened uh, maybe for the last few years, but certainly for the longest time, media studies was seen as the Mickey Mouse degree or, the, or whatever. Mm. If, if only we paid attention, if any more people did media studies, maybe other people would appreciate, you know, would approach things more critically. I want to get into the weeds just for a moment on podcasting mm. because I know it's a passion point of mine, it's a passion point of yours. I know it's all very meta being on a podcast talking about podcasting, but mm. it seems to me we're in either, depending on how you count it, the second or third bubble. So mm. let's say Ricky Gervais was the first, uh, Cause Serial was the second, and now almost we're in the, the commercial driven bubble in that there's actually money in podcasting mm. you've taken to using patreon to fund your revitalized revived pod mm. delusion uh, are you earning ad revenue as well is is the plan to earn ad revenue what's what's the business model going to be so I'm not actually that entrepreneurial. I'm quite risk averse uh, when it comes to these things. I my basic my goal is basically, can I <laughs> can I continue to uh, earn enough money to stay doing the job I do without having to get a real job? Uh, <laughs> that's basically the extent of my my entrepreneur, entrepreneurial um, uh, ambitions. So I'm not. Well, I, I'd love to sell advertising on it. I've I've now come around to the view of I would happily. Uh, do an ad read if I can figure out how to sell advertising. If you can connect me with any advertisers, I would love to talk. Um, but at the moment, I, I went for the Patreon route because I knew we had uh, this sort of, at least we had this brand recognition from a few years ago. Uh, we had a small pool of people at least who would be interested to see the pod delusion return. So I knew that was going to be the immediate place to go. I would like to sort of grow this show. But as I say, I'm balancing this against sort of my more traditional freelancing of pitching ideas to outlets that are established uh, and sort of seeing how I go. So I've not got any sort of, uh, you know, seed capitals to just put time into it endlessly or whatever until in, until it can make money until it can sell advertising and since you brought the pod delusion back at mm. time of recording it's been back what about eight weeks for something Ooh, like that something like that. it was early september i bought it yeah, back. yeah, yeah. so and you've seen a similar appetite from the same audience you've seen the same mm. audience have brought along their friends how's the relaunch gone so, yeah, it's, it's been really interesting, actually. So it's been really fun, which is the main thing. Uh, it's been a labour of love, and I've been really enjoyed getting back into it. And, again, I'm sort of broadening it out a bit from my, my usual stuff. At the time when I started it again, I was writing a lot for a really boring finance website. Uh, so this was that was a nice way of sort of <laughs> doing more interesting things again. Uh, so the way, the way I sort of pitched the relaunch was twofold. So I basically started by going after the, the old audience that used to exist. So sort of saying, hey, sceptics from back in the day, even though the movement doesn't really exist, you still exist, come listen to this show it's still about the same values we're looking at it in a new way um in more recent weeks i'm sort of now pivoting the brand as <laughs> um, as, as in i went into photoshop and designed a new logo <laughs> um towards uh, reaching out a new audience because i think having a sort of core community or a core constituency of people which is sort of self-reinforcing is really important so with the pod delusion originally we had the skeptic scene as i say that doesn't really exist anymore all of the different component parts of that sort of fell out of sync so now i'm sort of aiming it at very much uh basically you know cosmopolitan remainers who 
you know, basically the same values, but it's dressed up in a different way. And the, the big divide in our society now is cosmopolitan versus communitarian, remain versus leave, depending on how provocative you want to be. So I'm very much going for that sort of community and taking the, the noble approach to, to that. And again, so it's the same sort of thing, but I'm trying to package it up slightly differently. Okay. And final question in this section about your work. What is the work or, or, or at least the strand of work that you're most proud of? What, what's the thing where you think that's, that's made a difference or that, that's the stuff that I'm going to be remembered for? So, the th- the th- one the, so, one of the th- so my, my biggest scoop, so this isn't, this isn't a world-changing thing, but the, my, my favourite scoop that I've, I've done out of the, the limited number I've had was um, a few years ago I broke the story of um, what Transport for London were doing with Wi-Fi data. So uh, as of July this year, they're now monitoring everyone who goes through every tube station on the London Underground using their Wi-Fi. So if the Wi-Fi on your phone is switched on, even if you don't connect to the network, and um, they're picking up your phone and basically tracking you around. So by looking at where your phone has been picked up, they can see what journeys you've been making around the network. Uh, I was I won the FOI lottery and um, basically uh, did a freedom of information request to TFL and got their report on this month-long trial they did, which revealed all the amazing data insights. And it was sort of the sort of perfect encapsulation of the sort of opportunities and challenges presented by new technology. Because on the one hand, they were using this Wi-Fi data to basically plan better. You've got these amazing diagrams showing how people would... Uh, get between different... So, for example, going between uh, King's Cross and Waterloo Station, there's about 20 million different routes you can take around the tube network. TfL before didn't know how people were doing it. They knew you'd touch in at King's Cross, touch house at Waterloo. The in-between bit was a mystery. Using the Wi-Fi data, they could fill in the gaps and work out that, you know, 39% of people were changing at Oxford Circus, 29 were at Green Park and so on. So amazing data insights. They could squeeze more... Um, out of the tube um, without having to dig any new tunnels, which is really useful. But at the same time, this is a massive, massive privacy concern because everyone in London has to use the tube. They're tracking everyone's journeys. It can't be anonymous because of the way you know journey tracking works. You need it only pseudonymized so you can see how people are actually travelling around. So that trade-off is sort of perfectly encapsulated by this. So I hope that... And, th- and when I wrote this story, I published it on Gizmodo. Um, it, it got quite big. Um, lots of other outlets picked it up. Uh, so I hope that got people thinking about this thing. I think it's been weirdly undercovered, considering it's such an invasive system. Uh, people haven't been talking about it more, but I think that's, that's that's the story I'm most proud of. In terms of the sort of loftier goals and things I've done, uh, I, I don't... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think. Have you got... <laughs> it's just... just... <laughs> Oh, let me think. Um, in terms of loftier goals and so on, uh, I'm still waiting to see if I've made an impact or not. We are about to go into the final section of our discussion, which is the rocket fuel section. Some actionable insights that you, our listeners, can use in your daily lives to better understand youth audiences, youth culture, youth marketing, and trying to get to grips with tech and culture and things that affect this audience. James, first question in this section is always Mm. the same to every guest. What do you know about young audiences? Oh, I feel immediately out of touch, you simply asking me the question. Um, But no, I do know, like I said earlier, they are completely different to us in how they consume content and their media habits and everything else. The really striking example is is TikTok, which has, you know, a billion downloads or something like that. and I downloaded TikTok because I wanted to be understand what young people were, were doing. I, I was an early adopter on Twitter. I thought I need to be an early adopter on, on TikTok. 
downloaded the app, loaded it up. I felt like I was having a seizure just looking at the screen because it was just so loud and I didn't understand what was going on. I still don't fully understand it, but clearly there's, there's something very different there and that's going to require a very different approach. The same, something like Fortnite as well. That's like an entire platform in its own right. And again, that's sort of inadvertently doing the sort of much hypothesized sort of virtual world, the second life thing that we were <laughs> that maybe 10 years ago felt like it could have been a big deal. Um they, they seem to be doing that. So I, I do know that their habits are completely different. And what do you think has changed? I mean, you have something of a unique perspective looking at how technology's changed, how social media's changed. Mm. What do you think has changed and what do you think that says about young audiences? Uh, changed compared to what, sorry? Compared to, let's be slightly silly, let's mm. look at Friends Reunited versus mm. TikTok. <laughs> let's look at mobile phones that would flip where back, mm. was it a Samsung one that used to flip back in the day? The fact that the phone is the epicenter and a gateway now to everything. The fact that you never say mm. BRB in MSN Messenger because you never go anywhere, so mm. you can't be right back. What what do you think this says about young audiences? <laughs> I think I think um, yeah I think it approaches and I think it shows an entirely different approach to things. I'm still someone who, if I get an email which is important, which I want to put time into replying, I will think, oh no, I won't respond on the go, even though I'm looking at it on my phone. I think no, that that's just an email I need to be sat at my desk to respond to because it's a big important email. Yeah, young people don't do that; they'll just be tapping out a response. Uh, like that. The the really interesting thing with, with TikTok as well, and the, I'm sort of obsessed with it as a concept because it's just so bewildering. It sort of strips away all of the other stuff um, you'd expect to find in a social network, like, you know, user accounts, friends, everything else. It just does away with it. And it's just immediate. It's almost, it's almost, it feels, it's like eating trash because it feels like such immediate gratification. It's a 10 second video of someone doing a flip or hurting themselves in an amusing way or something. You know, and, and I worry it's rotting my brain. I, I, in my, my slight, you know, I, I worry it's rotting the young people's brains. Mm. That's, that's my old fogey opinion um, of it. But the really interesting thing um, about TikTok, and I think one thing we're going to have to consider, considering the mindshare, TikTok and Fortnite, these are both companies uh, which are ultimately owned or part-owned by uh, Chinese companies. So TikTok is owned by a Chinese company. Uh, I think Epic Games have got a significant investment from a Chinese company. That mindshare of young people, which is controlled by China, is something we should be concerned about. I'm not entirely sure what this means for marketing, but certainly in terms of understanding uh, the world and how people are going to sort of uh, uh, have a worldview built in the future is a really concerning thing. We saw recently China censoring um, content that was critical of uh, China's treatment of the Uyghurs um, outside of China. Um, you, you, if you upload a video of Tiananmen Square or you tag or you search, you can search for uh, you know, June the 4th, June the 5th on TikTok and get videos. Search for June the 6th. I think that was the date of Tiananmen Square. Mm. Or whatever the date of Tiananmen Square was, nothing will come up. So Chinese censorship rules are now applying to our country and our young people. <laughs> and so if they're getting their news and information from TikTok, that's something we should be concerned about. Uh, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> just one... Th- I, I want to drill down briefly in, on an issue of data privacy just mm. for a second. Because... I've. There is a huge almost backlash to caring about data privacy. Mm. And I think normally the the argument goes something like this. If I've got nothing to hide, then I don't care who has my data. Can you just educate those listeners that do feel a little bit like that or at least Mm. have heard that thought voice 
on why we should be passionate about data privacy? So I think it goes two ways. It's like the, the, the argument is always made in terms of the government, say, accessing um, our messages and so on. And you think, yeah, I, I don't want the terrorists to to, um, to win. So I'm not a terrorist. It's fine for me. But then you think about everything else and you think it's not if you build a backdoor into something, if your data can be accessed by one person, even if they've got good intentions, it can be accessed by others. Uh, so if the government build a back, you know, force a, a messaging app or a social network to build a backdoor and so they can get access to it, then that's equally a backdoor that could be used by um, hackers and other people. Uh, the thing I always think of as well when asked this question is something, to, I'm going to paraphrase what Cory Doctorow, the technologist uh, writer, said, which is basically, we have to worry about encrypting our data and our privacy to protect people who don't have that luxury. If you think about, even if, you know, you're, uh, you know, <laughs> even if you're completely fine, even if you're a law-abiding citizen in society, uh, even if, you know, you don't have anything to worry about, other people are so lucky. So would you want LGBT people having, <laughs> you know, being being exposed by hackers and that sort of thing? And so we've got to build systems that take everyone into account. I think I'm massively paraphrasing Doctor there, but I'm pretty sure he'd agree with that. You're going to look at the whole gamut of things. You don't want, um, you know, political activists, uh, you know, being clamped down upon. Yeah, sorry, I'm rambling. Oh, this isn't a very coherent thought. I'm really sorry. No, you're fine. Um, um, and yeah, and what more things are fine in this country, um, you, don't, you don't want to create a precedent that could impact um, another country. The, one of the things I'm strongly against is the Investigative Powers Act, which in this country legitimised the sort of Edward Snowden style uh, data collection and stuff. And the reason isn't necessarily because I think the government in this country would misuse such a system, though I think... The fact that such a bulk data collection system exists is worrying because we don't know who you know, the future prime minister could be who might want to misuse this system. But the fact of the precedent it creates for other countries, because now Russia and China and every other Timbuktu data ship on Earth can go, well, what's wrong with surveilling our citizens and collecting all of this data on them? Look, Britain's doing it. What, what, what's wrong? What, we're just doing the same thing they are. Yeah. And it creates a really dangerous precedent. OK. So one final question. Um in this edition of Rocket Fuel, and it's the, another question that we try to ask every guest. And it's simply this. Our audience are made up of those that work in youth culture, youth marketing, kind of at the intersection of art, creativity and technology. What's the one takeaway, James, that you would have for everybody listening? A one actionable insight that they can bring into their daily lives? Uh, I would say with all of your work, don't let the side down. Try and continue to aspire towards truth and evidence. Don't spread a lie because it's convenient, because it gets clicks, because it gets engagement, because you're just making the world worse. If you can, you know, stay within reality and it makes it better for everyone. Okay. Nice. How about that? <laughs> no, no, great way to end it. James, um, if people want to check you out, they can, of course, listen to The Pod Delusion, which yep. is downloadable where all good podcasts are and some bad ones too, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, also, where else can people find you? You're on social media. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my, so my website, jamesamadio.co.uk, that has links to everything. Uh, but I'm on Twitter. I'm Scythor. That's P-S-Y-T-H-O-R. Don't ask. I thought of the name when I was 13 and it stuck with me. Uh, but it's all on there. P-S-Y-T-H-O-R. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, I would be on TikTok, but I still don't understand it. Brilliant. James O'Malley, thank you very much for doing Rocket Fuel. <laughs> thank you. 
I did say, didn't I, that James O'Malley would speak at a million miles an hour, and I think after that, I've been proved right, haven't I? That said, I'm sure you'll agree that it was great com- he was great company and that the chat was really good. If you want to suggest a guest, if you wanted to give us a question, in fact, if you just want to share this podcast in front of anybody that you think will get something from it, I'd be really appreciative. You can come through to our website at wearerocket.co.uk. You can stalk me on social media. On Twitter, I'm at James Erskine. Or you can do any of those things. You can simply give us a five-star rating or a review. Tune in next week. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rocket Fuel. This is a Rocket Audio production.